Tonight we're going to start a new short series. I, uh, it'll take us just past the first of the year, but then uh, then we'll uh, we may do something that'll take a little bit a little bit longer time. I'm not sure, but but I want to talk tonight. We're starting a series entitled "The Gospel According to Moses." So turn to Genesis chapter three. I'm going to be reading from there in just a few moments, beginning in verse eight. But when we talk about Moses, what what kind of man was Moses? I mean. Just, just consider his bare accomplishments uh, in, of his life, you know, I mean, looking on the face of God and uh, leading the Hebrew people out of slavery, single-handedly defeating Egypt without ever raising an army, receiving the law written by the finger of God on tablets of stone and writing the first five books of the Bible, just, you know, minor points of accomplishment in life. However, beyond that, I mean, way beyond that, what kind of man is this? I was thinking in preparation for this, this whole series, so much of what the New Testament has to say and so much of what the rest of the law and the prophets and the Old Testament have to say, they're based on what God had to say through Moses in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The whole gospel really is in those first five books. Now, it's, it's in Old Covenant language, but it's all there. And that's what we're going to talk about the gospel that we find in the first five books of the Bible, everything we know to be true about the creation of the world. I mean, you read that in in Genesis. But then you ask yourself, just a second. (coughs) You ask yourself, but where did Moses get it? Maybe there was some way in which it was part of the oral teachings of the Hebrew people handed down from generation to generation to generation. However, I think it must have been infinitely more than that. This, this is the man whom God taught about the beginnings of the foundations and the, and the underpinnings of the world. God talked to Moses about his conversations with Adam. God revealed these things to Moses. I mean, what, what kind of experiences must they have been? What, what must have been going on in Moses spiritually to be able to receive the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, to receive the story of the, of the flood, to be able to receive all of these things that had never ever been written down before. And, and listen, if he only compiled or the oral history of the Hebrew people and simply by the power of the Holy Spirit was able to write that out, that in, its, in and of itself is a magnificent, contrib- magnificent contribution, not just to world literature, but to our spiritual understandings. However, I just don't believe that's that's all that happened. That's not all that happened. There, there must have been those magnificent moments where God said to Moses, all right, now let me show you this. And he pulled back the curtain to allow Moses to see how the created order of things actually began. What, what kind of man is it that God can talk to like that? I mean, men have, have always stared since remotest antiquity into the fathomless depths of space and said, I wonder where all this came from. And maybe Moses stood outside the doorway of his tent one night and said, Lord, from whence comes all these hosts of heaven? And and God said, let me tell you how I did it. And not the least of these revelations that Moses received from God that we have through the life and the witness of Moses is the understanding of a spiritual conflict. A spiritual conflict so profound that it really explains everything that's going on in our lives and it explains the conflict that finds its cataclysm at the cross. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Moses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> wrote these words. And they, that's Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to, them, said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, I want you to understand this. I'm not, this is not part of the teaching tonight, but remember this. Anytime God asks you a question, it's not because he needs the answer. He already knows the answer. He's asking the question because he wants Adam to face the reality of the answer. The man said, the woman, of course, Adam, he didn't, he didn't really face the reality of it because he's, he's going to pass the buck. It's just human nature. He said, and he, he didn't just blame the woman in this. He actually kind of blames God in his answer. He, he says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. By the way, implied in there is that you listened to the voice of your wife and chose not to listen to my voice. That's, in, that's the implication in there. Because you've done that. Uh, because, uh, uh, and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not, that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, those are heavy and somber words. You, you see here a revelation of God placing a curse in the moment of human rebellion, not only on the ground, but, but the curse of rebellion and sin, which was to flow through the veins of the sons and daughters of Adam, all through generation after generation, even down into our own bodies. However, in the midst of those somber words, you, 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 you find throughout all of the Old Testament, and in particular uh, of all the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, by the way. And if, if you know that terminology, penta just means five. So, you know, we have the, the Pentagon, which is a five-sided building. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And in, in that Pentateuch, it's, it's as if you're seeing flashcards that have a front and a back. And so you have the teacher that says, here's flashcard number one. And while you're looking at it, she just flips it over so you can see the other side. And then she says, here's flashcard number two. And she flips it back and forth. And so you sort of see this rapid succession of almost subliminal images throughout the entire Pentateuch. There are, there are these things that mean things in and of themselves. And they are complete, complete entity, entities in and of themselves. And yet, 
even then, even yet there's this reality behind the thing, the story behind the story. And it's as if you're listening to this great symphony and there's this flute melody that just seems to play throughout it. And it just seems to be there and then it's gone and then it's back again. And then you come to the crescendo of the whole thing and you realize that the symphony was not about the timpani. It was not about the French horns. It was not about all the string instruments, but it was all about that flute and that melody. You didn't get it until it was all finished. And you see that sort of thing over and over and over again. In this passage that we just read, in, in, the, in the midst of all of these somber, sober, heavy words about the ground being cursed and about the change in conception and childbirth and relationships and labor and thistles and thorns and all the rest of that, there is a buried treasure that's one of those flashcards in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, enmity is not a word we use very commonly in our, in our culture, but it's, it's an adversarial posture. It's enemy against enemy. It's hatred. There is some way in which there is a descendant of this serpentine evil there in the Garden of Eden, which is at enmity with the seed of the woman. Now, does that mean when you look at that, that, for example, rattlesnakes are the natural enemies of all of the people who are descendants of the woman? Does it, does it mean that? Or does it mean that there is, a, there is enmity between satanic evil and the sons and daughters of God? Well, the answer is yes, both. Yes, it's the flashcards. It means both of those, but the, but the truth is the greater reality is the reality that is behind the obvious. Certainly, if, if a rattlesnake strikes, Moses uses the figure here of a heel of a human being, and he strikes, as it were, from the back, you know, the heel, the ankle, the back of the leg, you, you might say that that, that that bespeaks of weak, unguarded humanity that is struck by the serpent. That's there, but there's something so much more profound there. This deep, eternal, transcendent conflict existed even before humanity existed, before existed, before all of this creation, there was already a conflict, a war behind the war. So who is this driving force behind this serpent? I mean, does this snake just suddenly take it upon himself to tempt the woman? No, there is an evil behind the evil, a mind behind the mind. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 14, in verses 9 through 15, we'll see some insights. The, the words that I'm about to read, the words here are of the prophet Isaiah, and he's taunting Babylon's fallen king. But listen, as we're talking about the, the flashcards, listen to the words behind the words. Look, look at the other side of the flashcard. It says this, Sheol, or that's, that it could be some places is translated hell or the grave. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have come as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. Now, stop there for a second. Is he talking... Excuse me, if he, is he talking about the king of Babylon or is, or is he talking about the king of evil behind the king of Babylon? And the answer is yes, 
both. Verse 12, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the earth, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, meaning God. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. I mean, what what a fascinating passage of scripture. And it shows us that behind every tyrant who ever lifted his throne up and claimed some position of preeminence, whether militarily or politically or spiritually for himself, behind him is is the, the mind of tyranny itself. Behind him is that satanic presence of that same spirit that possessed the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Now, now here is an even more pregnant reference in the book of Ezekiel, if you'll turn there to Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 12. And here again we see, what we see is the fall of the king of the ancient city of Tyre. And Tyre uh, was considered one of two sister cities, Tyre and Sidon. And here we see a taunt going up to the fallen and destroyed king of Tyre. We're going to begin reading Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation. Now that really, really is talking about means raise a false lamentation and weeping mockery over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings, and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So now he's talking to the king of Tyre, but it's obvious he's talking about also about a power behind the king of Tyre. Because the king of Tyre was not there in the Garden of Eden. And that, and that passage says you were in Eden, the Garden of God. In other words, the spirit of rebellion that is behind these swelling giant egos that vaunt themselves against God, there is another spiritual ego. See, there, there is this creature in heaven. Lucifer was his name, the son of mourning, one of, one of a very small number of archangels named by Scripture. You have Michael being one, Gabriel being another, and Lucifer. Lucifer evidently had about him something that set him apart even from Michael and Gabriel, and that was that he had consummate beauty. He was the most beautiful angel ever made. Furthermore, we know that in two out of the multiple references to Lucifer, he has described the connection with musical talent or ability. Some have called him the song leader in heaven or the praise and worship director in heaven during his time. And he walked among the flaming stones that were at the throne of God. And he, he moved about God with liberty and with beauty. His covering was, it was, it was covered with the greatest stones, the most beautiful covering that God gave to any exalted angel. He was the most beautiful and most talented, talented, the paramount creature of God among all of the exalted archangels of heaven. Yet in his rebellion, he was not willing to be a creature of God. He wanted to be God. So we see here that there is a war going on in the spiritual dimension that is happening around us all the time and has been going on for millennia. 
And we are both victims of the spiritual war. And through our own sin, we become willing participants in the war as well. Every time I, in my ego and pride and rebellion, every time I sin against God, I am being motivated. And I know this is shocking and it's a horrible thought to you and nobody relishes this, but there is a way in which I am allowing myself to be informed by the same spiritual dynamic that informed the serpent to play upon the pride and ego of Adam and Eve to commit that first rebellious act in the Garden of Eden. That, that same spiritual dynamic that feeds upon the sin that courses through my veins is still operative in the spiritual dynamic playing upon my pride and my sin and my rebellion and my ego, causing me to lift myself up against God so that in that moment I become a participant in the spiritual warfare, the rebellion that is swirling around me at all times. This heavenly war has an object. Satan, in, in lethal, destructive hatred, is the enemy of God and therefore the enemy of all that springs from God. Satan hates the order and the beauty of creation. It was part of his design to destroy the Garden of Eden. He, he hates humanity because we... We're, we're created in the image of God. He hates anything that, that comes from God or, or resembles God. Jesus said that he comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And he certainly has done that through sin and poverty and violence. And, 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 and furthermore, we know that Satan hates Israel. We read in, read in Genesis chapter 3 that there will be enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, here's the thing. The, the, when you talk about the seed of the woman, we're going to learn that that's multilayered as well. Through the process of election and selection, down through the ages, the seed of the woman, Eve, became the people, Israel. If you turn to Revelation chapter 12, we'll begin at verse 1. It says this, And a, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. That's the fallen angels that left heaven with Satan, and now they, they have become those the, the, the demonic presences that are now loose in the world. And it says, and, and he cast them to the earth. And then look at the middle of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, now let's stop there for a moment. Because this is the flashcard principle again. Does it mean that Satan hates all the children of all humanity? Does it mean that he hates the children of the Jews? I mean, you remember the story of, the, of Ramah weeping and the weeping that would not be stilled because of her, her children no, were no more because Herod commanded all the babies under two years of age in Bethlehem should be put to the sword? Or, or, or does it mean that, that, that the hatred of all anti-Semites from the dawn of time that, that hate and hope to devour and destroy the children of the Jews? Or, or does it mean specifically that Jesus himself was the hated object? That Satan intended to destroy him right after his birth from a Jewish mother? Which one of those? The answer is yes. 
You see what I'm trying to say here? When you read the scripture this way and you begin to see this flashcard principle and you begin to understand there are layers of meaning on different things, then what happens is that you begin to see that there's this happening here and behind that there's this other happening. Behind that there's this other happening. And then behind that there's this idea and vision. And then there's this great principle that's behind that that unveils for you, the, the entire Pentateuch especially is like this. When you read it like that, it just will open up your minds to see things. Therefore, we can see that there is a satanic hatred for the Jewish people, even as there is a satanic hatred for humanity in general. In fact, can I just say this? I believe that, that, that in the spirit of the pro-abortion movement, there is something of the same spirit that vote motivated Pharaoh to destroy the little babies in Egypt and motivated Herod to destroy all the little baby boys in Bethlehem. There, there is a basic, fundamental, satanic hatred for human life and birth. Satan hates every baby that comes out of his mother. And the Bible says that every child is sacred under God, that, is, that we're made in the image of God. And in the same way, every child born is an object of hatred for Satan. He hates them and he wants to destroy them. Nevertheless, out of Israel... Satan's prime target was, of course, Messiah, Emmanuel. The seed of the woman, singular, that would come from this woman in the Garden of Eden. Generation upon generation, selection here, election there, a change of pace, a younger child chosen instead of an older one, a Gentile woman brought into the thing, a Rahab, a Ruth, this family here, that family there, the hand of God moving from generation to generation, that this particular seed of the woman, this Messiah, this Christ, the seed of the woman who was to complete the revenge of God upon, satanic's pres uh, upon this satanic presence, he was to bruise the ser serpent's head. He was to come to the very center of the evil and to work against the mind of evil to work the completion of God's victory. And you see this conflict throughout all of Scripture and throughout all of history. When, when Israel entered the Gaza territory after it crossed the Red Sea, uh, uh, when it left e Egypt and the, left slavery there, why did the nation of Amalek follow them and attack them? Why would, why would they just hate the, these wandering Hebrews that they've never personally seen before and then just attack them from nowhere? And then generations and generations and generations later, under the rule of Saul, the first king of Israel, God gives Saul the command... Go now and destroy the Amalekites, for I remember how they hated my people Israel immediately after they crossed the Red Sea, how they attacked them in the desert. Now I will reap judgment against them. So, so th there is a way in which God says, I will not simply allow evil to fall upon the seed of the woman generation after generation. My righteousness will be vindicated and my judgment must be brought forth. And we see the, God's judgment on, on Egypt uh, in Egypt on Pharaoh. We see God's judgment on the Roman Empire under whose authority Jesus was put to death. We, we see God's horrifying judgment upon the, the fascists and the Nazis of Germany because of their lethal anti-Semitism. Because God will not tolerate anti-Semitism. God will not stand for it. God will always watch over the seed of the woman. And now you have China, this communist China persecuting the church and, and, and will come eventually to tie... Uh, to the tie between the church and the seed of the woman. But, you know, I mean, uh, you, you see this hatred for the church. And 
I, I weep for the Arab people who are under the bondage and the deception of Islam because at the very core of Islam, there is a satanic anti-Semitism and anti-Christianity. And that will bring upon it the inevitable wrath of God. It's inevitable. Now, this, this monstrous clash was seen very clearly in personal form when Jesus arrived. There was a warm-up with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the seed of the woman, but he was a seed of the woman who pointed to the seed of the woman. Therefore, he was killed. The direct attack upon Jesus after his birth was an attempt to abort, as it were, his life and ministry and the great work. And it was an attempt for, to abort that through Herod by the enemy. Jesus' satanic temptation in the wilderness was another attack on the seed of the woman. I mean, think about this. At what point was Jesus tempted? How was he tempted? Pride and ego. If you are the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, prove yourself. Go up to the pinnacle of the temple and hurl yourself, hurl yourself down. If you're the Son of God, then turn this bread into stone. Prove yourself. Let me, let me you know, you, you're making these claims and it's, it's, a, it's a temptation with pride and ego. It was, it was not just at the point of his carnal appetites, but it was really at the same point that, that, that uh, tempted Adam when he, when he said, did God say to you that you would die? You won't die. That's essentially what Satan says to Jesus in the moment of temptation. He's, he's trying the same thing with Jesus, the second Adam, that he tried with the first Adam. And then, then there's the demonic opposition to Jesus' ministry as he proves his authority and power. You know, the, demonics, the demons would raise up against him. And, th and then there's the fascinating conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, Pharisees and the Sadducees. Turn to Matthew 23. We're going to read uh, quite a few verses here, uh, but, but I, I want you to, to follow along with me here. Beginning in verse 1, Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. So he says, listen, these religious leaders, they have the office. They have the authority of that office. You should respect the authority of that office. So go ahead and obey them. But he says, do not live the way they live. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. And, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. Now, phylacteries, if you don't know what that is, it's little boxes that they wore uh, with bands on their foreheads that, that contained within them the laws of God. He says they, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues. What is it he's talking about here? The exaltation of self. It's the same spirit that Lucifer had, wanting to exalt himself. The, the great final deception of, sat, of satanic evil is, is that he not only attacks from the outside with oppressive tyranny, but he attacks from the inside by religion that vaunts itself and gets itself a, on an ego trip. Verse 7, and, uh, they, and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. 
The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now listen very carefully, starting with verse 13. Watch this, because this is Jesus starts a series of woes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What, what, did, what did Satan do in the Garden of Eden? By his trickery and by his guile, by his deception, by his rebellion, he, he did what? He closed the Garden of Eden. He got them put out. He, he brought them into a place where their rebellion, rebellion forbade them re-entry. So it's the same spirit. He said, you shut the kingdom of heaven. What did Satan do? He shut the Garden of Eden. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and, are, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Now remember, he's saying these things. The scribes and the Pharisees are right there. They're hearing him say these things. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on that altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, who, so whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's saying you're not wrong to tithe, but you're missing the big issues. Verse 24, you blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now, what was the most unclean thing imaginable in the law of Moses? That's right. If you, if you even passed by a dead body and the hem of your garment accidentally touched it, you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for seven days. The most horrifyingly unclean thing of all was a dead body. And Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, you are dead bodies. You are cursed. As I've said before, I'm, I'm never amazed that Jesus was crucified. I'm amazed that he lasted three years. Verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets 
and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Now verse 33, here it is. Here it is. Look at this. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You serpents, you brood of vipers. What's another translation? Another way you could say brood of vipers. You could say you seed of snakes. Descendants of a serpent. Wow. I mean, we've, we've just read a few moments ago about a serpent. Jesus is tying this all together. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the spirit that was behind the religious leaders of his day was the same spirit that was in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is saying that their religious show, that the presumption, the arrogance, the pride that exalts itself and, and rejects the true spirit of Jesus is the same spirit that was in the Garden of Eden, the same spirit that motivated Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the same spirit that motivated Pharaoh, the same spirit that motivated Herod, the same spirit that was behind the Roman Empire, the same spirit that was behind the Nazis, the same spirit that was, that's behind the, the communist empire in, in China, the same spirit that flew planes into the World Trade, Trade Center. It's the same spirit. The spirit that always hates the seed of the woman is the seed of the serpent. Now you can put religious clothes on it or you can dress it up in the clothes of a Nazi stormtrooper, storm but it's the same serpent. Wow. You understand what he's saying here? Jesus is saying that the spirit that was behind the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, was the same spirit that many, many years later pushed old Jewish ladies, ladies into gas chambers at Auschwitz and Dachau. What a horrifying thought. And Jesus said that generation is cursed. It's cursed. Now we come right down to it. Because my problem as a human being is that I don't know whether I'm the seed of the serpent or of the seed of the woman. I mean, I know I was born of my mother, so I'm a seed of the woman in that sense. But am I the seed of the seed of the woman? Or am I a descendant of a viperous, serpentine, guileful, subtle evil? How can I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm not the enemy of God? That, that the spirit of Antichrist is not behind me, motivating me and, and owning me? Well, the book of Romans has some very fascinating insight into that. In fact, you know, we did a study on the book of Romans. It's like 40 some odd sessions long. You can go back and, 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 and watch those or listen to those. I don't remember if we recorded those with video or not, but they're on our website. But, but sometime in your own leisure, not, not tonight during the rest of our study, but in your own time, read the book of Romans. And in particular, zero in on chapter four of the book of Romans. Because Paul, in the book of Romans, makes a, a devastating attack on Jewishness by birth, providing de facto entry into the kingdom of God because they believed we are going to make it in the kingdom of God because we were born Jewish. He, and he says that if being the seed of Abraham is enough to get you into the kingdom of God, then he said, well, riddle me this. 
Why was the promise of God given to Abraham before he was circumcised? The promise of God was given to Abraham before circumcision. Therefore, circumcision, or i.e., obedience to the law, is not going to get you entry into the end of the kingdom because Abraham received the promise from God before the law was ever given. The promise was given to Abraham before he was circumcised. Therefore, it must be about something other than observing the law. But what is it? How can I make sure that I'm born of the seed of the woman who has bruised the serpent's head? How can I make sure that I'm on the victory side? How can I make sure that I line up with Jesus, who is the ultimate seed of the woman, to ultimately and finally bruise the serpent's head? How can I make sure I'm of that line? Here's the problem. When we were born the first time, physically born, we were born descendants of Adam. Therefore, the curse of Adam was in our blood. You know, a religious leader, a, 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 a religious man, a leader, a minister, a, a pre teacher and preacher, he came to Jesus at night one time and he said, I see all of these wonderful things that you're doing. I think you must be somebody great maybe a prophet, maybe, maybe you're even the seed of the woman for which we've been waiting. How can I get in on your team? I want to play on your side. And Jesus looked at him, the man's name was Nicodemus, and he said to him, it's simple, you must be born again. See, I was born the first time, but I was born into the curse. So he says, it's simple, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus, the, the man who came to see him, was very confused. He said, I, I, I don't understand that at all. He said, I'm nearly 50 years of age. How can I go back into my mother's body and be born again? And, and Jesus said, now here's a strange thing. You're a ruler, a teacher, a rabbi of Israel, and you don't understand being born of the Spirit? I'm talking spiritual language here, and you're supposed to, supposed to be a spiritual man. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you have a baby, it's a baby. However, if God gives birth to a baby, it's God's child. It's something different altogether. He said, therefore, that natural birth, which you have already received because you are here physically, must be replaced with a spiritual birth, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the, and the curse under which you, you were born, the, the curse under which you have lived your entire life, and under which you will die apart from the work of God, that curse must be somehow removed from you. You must somehow get out from underneath the curse. How can that happen? How can I get out from underneath the curse? If I'm born of the seed of the woman and it was cursed in the Garden of Eden, cursed is the ground, it will bear thorns and thistles, cursed is your labor, cursed is the whole thing. The entire Old Testament ends with the words, the earth with a curse. That's the, the last words of the Old Testament. How can I get out from underneath the curse? Well, the book of Galatians says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, who is hanged on a tree. Now listen, that's a familiar picture. You know what that is? That's the backside of the flashcard. What was on the front of the card? You remember? The Israelites were moving through the wilderness and the people rebelled and began to murmur and a curse of serpents came up among them. You remember this? Snakes, the seed of the snake began to strike them and smite them 
And they began to die in great numbers. Being smitten by the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman began to die. And all those Jews alone in the wilderness were dying because the seed of the serpent was striking them. They were dying. What was the sting of the poison? The sting of the poison was death. They were dying and the people cried out to Moses and said, we have to get out from underneath this curse. We have to escape this curse. What can we do? And Moses went to God. What, what kind of man is this? He said, God, you have to show me something to break the power of this curse, the sting of death, which is killing men. And he said, make a serpent of bronze on a stick and hold it up and walk through the camp. Everybody who's bitten by a snake who looks at that bronze serpent will be healed. The curse will come out of them and, and go per se onto the bronze serpent and they'll be delivered of the curse. Think about this. Have you ever wondered why a snake? Because that, that's not a sign of deliverance. It's not a symbol of deliverance. He didn't, he didn't say, I want you to lift up a lamb on a stick. And everybody that looks on the lamb will be healed. He, lift, lift, he lifted up a sign of the thing that was killing them. The curse. The death that was on them. He lifted up a sign of the death. It had nothing to do with God. It had to do with the curse that was killing them. So Moses walked through the camp with his bronze serpent. The snakes are biting them. They, walk, they look at that curse that's being lifted up. The curse hanging suspended between heaven and earth. The curse is hanging there on the tree, on the cross, on the pole. And they look up at that and that bronze serpent takes the poison out of them. And they were healed. Where have I heard that before? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is it that Jesus said? And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He became the curse. And in becoming the curse, he pulled the poison of the curse from us. The wonderful thing is that Jesus was cursed with a curse that I deserved. He, he, he's cursed with my poison. The, the strike of the serpent, the sting of the serpent that, that courses through my blood is placed upon him. And then I, simply by looking upon him in faith, go free. Born again, now no longer seed of the woman by natural means only, but I'm seed of the seed of the woman by the Spirit of God. You see, you see the gospel is just so wonderful. Moses saw that. Oh, he, he, he may not have seen it like Jesus saw it and, or maybe even not like the way that we can see it looking in retrospect. But I believe that as Moses walked through the camp that day, that bronze serpent lifted over his head as he's holding up, looking at it as raised up above the ground. And I believe that, that he's, he, he said, God, I know this is not about a bronze serpent. I know that this is not about snake bites. This is about the curse. This is, thank you, God, the, the seed of the woman will come. I, I remember when I, when I wrote that in, in, the, in Genesis, I remember that moment. God, I, I believe this is what you're talking about. I know the seed of the woman will come. I know he'll come. I know he'll come and, and he'll bruise 
this serpent's head once and for all. And Jesus lay lifeless in the grave for three days. And as he was there, the satanic spirit that had motivated the Herods and the Pharaohs and the dynasties and the empires of the world rejoiced in a hollow victory. The seed of the woman was dead. <laughs> but when he arose with healings, healing in his wings, the serpent was done. Therefore, there is now no sting. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of the law and the curse of death is broken. Listen, I have, I have a great announcement for you tonight. You don't have to die under a curse. Even better, you don't have to live under a curse. You don't have to go on with this wicked, evil, damnable, snake-bite death all the time. God has already dealt with that. Jesus rose up from that grave and he stomped on that serpent's head. He stomped his brains out. Thank the Lord. We then, therefore, are more than conquerors. It's not simply that we conquer, but we become more than conquerors. You know, you know actually the... The, the most literal translation of that phrase is like super conquerors. And that's the reason Paul said for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said the curse of the law and the sting of death is broken in my life because I'm born again. I am the seed of the seed of the woman. And that is really good news. Really good news. Bow your head and let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for the seed of the woman. And as we see here written very, very early in, in the Holy Scripture, Lord God, we see this picture, the, this picture that points to Jesus, this flashcard, the seed of the woman, and it says this on the front and then on the back of the flashcard, we begin to see and understand how you, Jesus, came and you took the, the curse upon yourself and you, you were lifted up. And as we look to you, you give us life and you took our death. And Lord, we're just amazed at that. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made the way and that it's not because we are good enough. It's not because we have done anything or will ever do anything to deserve it. But simply because of your grace, you have adopted us. You have made us seed of the seed of the woman. You've made us children of God. Thank you for that second birth and for removing the curse from that first birth. We give you praise in all these things. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.